These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today, we conclude the history of Ugarit, with the ultimate destruction of the city at the close of the Bronze Age. Last episode, we looked at the city's early history, and today we open with King Nikmepa on the throne, setting the tone for the city's final century. The main story for Nikmepa's extremely long reign, which some estimate to possibly be as long as 50 years, though dating for all of Ugarit's rulers is highly uncertain, is one of mercantile prosperity and free interactions with its neighbors. Though we think of Ugarit, like most of the great Canaanite cities, as founded on trade, the truth is that it was founded on a firm base of low-level agriculture, and a majority of the citizens of Ugarit likely lived outside the city itself, in the various farms and villages that dotted the countryside. These villages are usually considered as a single economic unit each, at least in the eyes of the government, and were liable for taxation in silver, wool, olive oil, cattle, wine, and grain, those being the main produce and industry of the vast majority of Ugaridians. Olive oil is the thing that really stands out here, since wine, grain, wool, and cattle would be expected of villages all throughout the region. Though as you go further east, of course, the wine would change to beer. Olive oil, however, is something of a local specialty around the region of Ugarit, and they appear to have produced it by the literal boatload. One estimate added together the various local taxes and government rations together, and calculated that in a typical year, Ugarit distributed over 11,000 liters of olive oil as payments to the various nobles and as rations to government workers. And of course, if this is the part being used to pay for government services, then this must have only been a fraction of the total produced. Uh, which was then exported all around the Near East, filling the coffers of the king and his merchants. Those exports, however, did not appear to directly enrich the people who produced it through direct exchange. There is an ongoing debate in the economic history of the Bronze Age Near East, where some believe that there was almost no free market anywhere at any time until it was invented in fits and starts at various points along the line, while others believe that the free market was the natural default state of all economic activity, with the state only occasionally getting involved in economic exchange usually just as a wealthy pocket playing the same market that everyone else was involved in. Now, this argument really, unfortunately, gets pulled into modern-day discussions about the viability of communism and capitalism, and I'm not going to lie, I certainly have opinions on that score. But the fact is that while people of the Bronze Age are fundamentally the same sort of people as modern folks, the economies and social organization is so radically different that I don't think that the modern debate really has anything of value to say about ancient society either way. And I don't think that the Bronze Age is a valuable data point in determining modern economic policies in general. But ultimately, it looks like state involvement in the Bronze Age economy 
varied greatly by time and place in the ancient Near East. In Ugarit specifically, however, it was the king who appears to have controlled the means of production for most high-end crafts and industries. Now, these weren't, it should be emphasized, state-run industries in the sense we understand today. But mostly, the king of Ugarit was a wealthy man spending his money on investments in production. Also, he had the power to compel core V labor for a portion of the year, which a power commonly held by Bronze Age monarchs. Also, keep in mind that we have, even at Ugarit, relatively little documentation surrounding subsistence agriculture and home-based crafts, like creating the clothes that most common folk wear every day. With all that said, we don't see very much evidence for crafts and industries that are not controlled by the palace and royal family. Does that mean it's not there? Or does that mean we just haven't found the evidence? Eh? Who knows? We look at other cities and we see a lot of variation. We can't say for sure. Quite a lot of the palace economy was identical with the village economy. The palace reserved specific plots of land for itself, and the people who worked that land paid their surplus to the palace, and sometimes corvi labor would be used for improving that royal land. But much of the output was the same as any other village land. However, craft specialists were also kept close to the palace through a modified version of the old Babylonian Ilkum system, whereby a craftsman would get land and a certain amount of income in exchange for being basically on call for the palace. Textiles were in Ugarit worked in a factory setting, where different specialists would handle different parts of the garment, all the way from shearing and spinning to tailoring and embroidering. Quite a lot of what was held in the royal storehouses appears to have been a variety of cloth products, not just clothes, but carpets, nets, bags, and other useful woolen items. By the late Bronze Age, whatever mineral deposits Ugarit may have had were long since exhausted, but by importing metals from Cyprus and the northern Hurrians, they maintained a strong bronze industry, which also had the ability to work fine gold and silver vessels, and even a limited amount of iron for prestige products. Nearby, carpenters were broke down into various specializations, with some building houses, some building ships, some building chariots, and some working with smiths to mass-produce weapons for export to a region that was always hungry for a bit more killing. All these export goods would be sent to royal warehouses. These craftsmen, it seems, were salaried, and since the palace paid the material costs, and the salaries, they took the whole product as payment. These royal warehouses were the origin point of shipments that would head out in every direction, though perhaps surprisingly, it seems that Ugarit merchants rarely traveled too far outside a small bubble. These merchants were all licensed by the king and traded on his behalf, and as payment for their trouble, they were allowed to buy some of the warehouse merchandise themselves, and try and turn a profit with it as well. An inventory of the places they went is basically an inventory of all the places that Ugarit had relations with in this period. 
the one place that Ugarit's goods would go to, that the traders would not go, is to Hattusha. Only taxes, it seems, went to Hattusha, though these went regularly and in very large quantities, where the great king of the Hittites would either make use of them or make a bit of cash selling them to Hittite merchants and resellers. But Ugarit didn't actually answer directly to Hattusha. Like all Syrian vassals, they took commands from the viceroy in Karchemish. But despite this, it doesn't appear that they paid any taxes to Karchemish, which may have been a method of con for the Hittite great king to have controlled his vassals in Karchemish. And instead, overland trade routes would haul goods to a special warehouse and embassy that Ugarit maintained in Karchemish, where the goods would be sold by a special Ugarit ambassador to Karchemish. It would be only after the ambassador handed the goods off to the viceroy's representatives that these goods would then be resold to merchants traveling down the Euphrates to the cities of Mesopotamia. That is to say, Ugarit's job was not to sell things to the various citizens of Karchemish or to the towns around Karchemish. No, Ugarit's job was to sell things to this viceroy at Karchemish who would then be the middleman and sell it to his local market or sell it directly to large cities down the Euphrates River. And presumably these cities had a similar arrangement where you would sell it directly to the city of perhaps Babylon. And then someone in Babylon would be in charge of receiving these shipments and then make their money further reselling all these things either to other cities or to the people in and around Babylon. Karchemish, in turn, maintained a similar warehouse and embassy in Ugarit, as did, in fact, many foreign powers. And horses and slaves were the chief import from the northwest via Karchemish. So, horses and slaves from all around Hurrian lands would come in to Karchemish, and then they'd be sort of bundled up, I mean, not literally, because horses and slaves, you don't just tie them together. Maybe you do, I don't know. Anyway, and then you'd have this big bundle, and you'd bring it to the warehouse in Ugarit, and then the person in charge of basically the Karchemish ambassador to Ugarit would then resell these things to all the people of Ugarit, or just go ahead and sell it on the trade route to somewhere else. Now, there was, uh, in all of this, somewhat less land trade between Ugarit's two friends among the various Syrian vassal cities, Amaru and Kadesh, mostly because these lands were mostly buying for themselves from Karchemish and from these other places, and they were passing much less onward. But there were locally produced things in Amaru and Kadesh that would be passed forward to Ugarit in much the same way. Now, for merchants venturing into the sunset, moving goods by ship was always the preferred way to transport long distances. We know of at least one merchant who made it all the way to Crete, and hints of occasional trade with maybe Greece, but for the most part, the ambitions of Ugarit's traders were more restricted than that. In fact, in later times, there were actually orders from the Hittites not to permit ships to sail too far out 
Though whether this was in light of the military situation as the sea people begin to arrive, or a matter of trade protection, is unclear. Within Ugarit's bubble, Alashia, modern Cyprus, seems to have been the most popular destination, bringing in ship after ship of precious copper to feed Ugarit's state factories. In exchange, Ugarit sent all manner of luxuries, both some domestically manufactured and some imported from around the known world, and served as a crucial link from Cyprus to the mainland. To the south, Ugarit had always had relations with the other Canaanite maritime states, and continued to trade even with those on the other side of the Egyptian border. Beirut, Acre, Ascalon, Byblos, Sidon, Tyre, and others, and they all exchanged luxury items, most especially the famous purple dye and purple cloth of the region but also whatever sorts of exotic oils, precious stones, and crafted goods as each city could produce. We even hear of complex business ventures, such as Byblos entering into a long-term lease to provide Ugarit with ships, and there were mercantile embassies and warehouses for all these neighbors in each of these cities. In later times, Ugarit's ships were formally prohibited from sailing south of Sidon, that's that Hittite uh, restriction on sailing that I mentioned, but either Ugarit's merchants disregarded these instructions, or the harbor at Ugarit played host to many foreign ships that these rulings could not apply to, sort of like modern uh, flag laws, where if your ship flies the American flag, you have to fly, follow American laws, but if your ship flies the Panamanian flag, well, does Panama even have laws? Not completely sure on that. Anyway, it seems that there may have been something vaguely similar in the ancient world, though not one for one exactly. Even as far south of Egypt, Trade never really stopped, except for those few years around the Battle of Kadesh. And as the late Bronze Age came to a close, Egypt purchased ever more luxuries from Ugarit in exchange for massive amounts of grain, both for the city and for the Hittites in the north. In the north, along the water, the southern coast of Anatolia's main trading post was the town of Utu, which supplied Tarhuntasha, both while it was Muatali's temporary capital and later as the semi-autonomous southern district of the Hittite Empire. Actually, when we're talking about Utu, it seems that having the backing of a major Hittite palace there led the merchants to have deeper pockets than Ugarit could compete with, and the problem of Utu's merchants buying up property in Ugarit eventually got so bad that it had to be banned by a Hittite royal decree. Now think, I don't know how many people are old enough or well enough informed to remember that back in the 80s in the U.S., people were terrified of Japanese people coming over and buying the whole country. And... Even now, there are people who are convinced that the Chinese are going to buy every scrap of land in the United States. And now, I don't know how many of you are old enough or aware enough to remember that back in the 80s, people were, in the United States, convinced that the Japanese were going to buy up all the land in America. And 
now even, there are people who will look at you with a straight face and will tell you that the Chinese are buying up all the land in the United States. And these exact same sort of fears were playing on the merchants of Ugarit when they lobbied the great king of Hattusha to ban merchants from Utu from buying up land in Ugarit. It's these exact same issues coming up again and again in history based on the exact same sort of nativist fears. Now, there was quite a lot of mercantile activity along this route between Ugarit and Utu, but there was also a lot of legal disputes, not just the land, but legal disputes of all kinds, as the two merchant groups seemed to have been continuously defrauding each other, arguing over contract details, and generally making a fuss for the authorities to sort out. But the troubles with Utu and Tarantasha were basically a friendly rivalry. I mean, they weren't... I mean, they did beat each other up a couple times, but I mean, it's basically a friendly rivalry. The only genuine quarrel Ugarit had was with its very closest neighbors, the tiny towns of Sianu and Ushnatu. Now, these, you'll remember, had been part of Ugarit's territory for a while before successfully appealing to the great king of the Hittites for independence from Ugarit. Now, they didn't get full independence, of course. That's not an option if you're in the Hittite Empire. But they did become nominal equals to Ugarit as fellow vassals beneath the Viceroy of Karchemish. And as so often happens, the tyranny of tiny differences rears its head. Knowing that Ugarit cannot simply crush them, as both are protected in the vassal system, the tiny southern towns endlessly petition the court to redraw the boundary line over one dispute after another. First a town, next some farmland, then a salt flat, and ultimately, Mershley at one point was deciding plots iku by iku, with an iku being a land measurement a bit smaller than a modern acre. And it wasn't just tiny Sianu and Ushnatu causing problems on the border, though. Ugarit also was likely an instigator in this, trying to use its much greater size and importance to squeeze out the hated neighbors. Things escalated into just short of open warfare multiple times, and thanks to the extensive documentation of the complaints on both sides, we can get a taste for how ruinous, hostile borders were in the Bronze Age. Cross-border raids, even between these two tiny vassals, they could burn down whole villages. They could destroy an entire stockpile of crops. Wine would be carted away under cover of darkness. People spotted too close to the border could be beaten by gangs, and anyone who looked too prosperous could be violently abducted, carted across the border, and sold on the international slave market. Think about that. You're sitting you know, a little ways away from the border, but you look, you know, purchasable, I guess. And then a gang comes over, rushes, grabs you up, takes you away, sells you on the market, and the odds of anything ever getting rectified here are pretty low. Uh, it does happen occasionally, but I get the impression that those times that these were fixed actually represents the exception not the rule. 
Anyway, merchants crossing the border, or even approaching this border, could be killed even in enemy territory, which would make the hated neighbor liable for the death restitution, often exceeding a thousand shekels of silver for successful merchants. This was in Hittite law, that if a merchant on the road was attacked by bandits, then that meant you, as the king of this uh, whatever city you're in, were not protecting the roads, were not protecting trade. This was a national issue, and the court in Hattusha would require that you pay these fines, even though it's your southern neighbor reaching up and killing these merchants. Now, of course, this would, if this happened a lot, this would make these roads much less attractive destinations for traders, which would then hurt the target city even more. The viceroy in Karchemish did what he could to get restitution when possible and to generally calm the situation, but as far as we can tell, this one tiny border was a violent blight on an otherwise peaceful Hittite vassal system, at least in the vicinity of Ugarit. After f perhaps 50 years on the throne, somewhere around 1260-ish, Nikmepa finally passed away, leaving behind three sons. Now, we don't know what exactly happened here, but there was some conflict over succession, which was apparently quite bad. Ultimately, the Queen Mother and the Viceroy of Karchemish negotiated a settlement in which the two older sons were given their portion of the father's inheritance, purely in terms of wealth, and exiled to Cyprus for the rest of their days, while Amitamru II, the youngest of the three, took the throne in Ugarit. The verdict was ultimately confirmed by King Tithalia IV when he took the Hittite throne some time later, suggesting that the case continued to be litigated for quite some time after, but the city of Ugrit appears to have remained stable despite these machinations. Though the throne was now stable, Amitamru's life would feature what seems to have been one of the biggest legal disputes in the late Bronze Age. Like his father, he went to the neighboring kingdom of Amaru to receive a wife to bind the alliance between the two cities closer. However, in the span of a generation, if a very long generation, the royal house of Amaru has been marrying up, gaining three more royal marriages with the Hittite royal line itself. And Amitamru is able to score a pretty solid catch. The daughter of King Benteshina of Amaru, and the granddaughter of the Hittite great king Hattushili III, by way of Hattushili's daughter Gashili Yawia. Obviously, this is a political marriage, not a love match, but a love match really wasn't in the cards for any of these folks, and history tells us that a good portion of arranged marriages end up happy, just thanks to both parties putting in the effort to make it work. That said, not all of them end up happy, and Amitamru's marriage seems to have been one of these. Now, we don't actually know the wife's name. As is typical of Bronze Age patriarchy, the woman herself is unimportant, and only ever identified by her connections with more important male ancestors. Whatever her name may have been, the only formal charge against her was that she, quote, sought trouble for Amitamru which is 
vague enough to invite all manner of speculation, from adultery to political intrigue. But it's entirely possible that, whatever the specifics of the dispute, the couple simply didn't get along for purely human reasons. The subsequent divorce, while extremely high-powered, appears to have been fairly standard. The husband found his wife not to his liking and simply sent her packing back to her parents in Amaru, though she had her dowry returned to her as was expected in this sort of situation, and the couple's one son was given the option of which parent he wanted to live with, selecting his mother in this case and returning to Amaru with her. Now, this alone likely soured relations between the two formerly close cities and would have been one of the biggest court gossips in the Hittite sphere of influence. But once the ex-wife was safely back with her parents, something seems to have happened. Perhaps Amitamru discovered some additional, formerly hidden slight against His Majesty. Perhaps she continued to give her ex problems with intriguing and backbiting, even all the way from Amaru. Or perhaps Amitamru was just a hothead and kept obsessing over the wrongs that he thought his ex had done against him. Certainly, I've met people like that. Whatever the case, sometime after the divorce had been finalized, Amitamru sent a letter to Amaru demanding that his ex-wife be extradited back to Ugarit. Now, at first, the ex-wife's brother, King Shashkimua of Amaru, was naturally resistant. Amitamru was likely to punish his ex severely, possibly even executing her for the high crime of offending her husband. Now, this matter was referred all the way to the great king in Hattusha, Tudhalia IV, for a decision. Tudhalia himself was in a precarious situation at the time, with an unstable throne and problems starting to crop up all around the empire, and here he was forced to balance between the interests of two equally important and powerful vassals. One was guaranteed to be offended no matter how he chose. From the perspective of Bronze Age jurisprudence, Tudhalia ignored questions of political influence and simply ruled on the merits of the case, taking the wholly just and traditional position that it was the right of an offended husband to execute his wife. It's not really the approach that a modern legal scholar would take, but there is a trend in modern history to see women as equal, if often hidden, participants in history, whose stories deserve to be revealed. As a modern person, I naturally believe that women are just as fully human and worthy of legal and human rights as men, but the fact is that in the Bronze Age Near East, women were possessions, not participants, and with few exceptions, had no role in the world outside the household. The vast majority of women in this age of history lived and died to produce within the household, to serve their men, and to give birth, and the lucky ones were able to do this for a husband who loved them. This unnamed royal woman was not one of the lucky ones, and the judgment went against her as completely as it can. Tadalia's letter to Shaushkamua of Amaru, her brother, read, If Shaushkamua, son of Benteshina, king of Amaru, does violence to Amitamru, son of Nikmepa, king of Ugarit, 
Or does violence to the boats or the soldiers who go to retrieve the daughter of the Hittite royal woman, his ex-wife, then heaven and earth and a long list of gods will know of it. These gods will do Shaushkamua violence. May they make him disappear from the house of his father and from the country of his father and from the throne of his fathers. With this, the ex-wife's extradition was enforced by the might of the Hittite Empire and the many shared gods of the Near East, and the lady was executed. Amitamru was asked to pay a blood price to the king of Amaru, 1,400 shekels, approximately 30 pounds of gold, and Shaushkamu appears to have managed to wipe his tears with this money and consider it an even exchange. 30 pounds of gold for one sister, since we don't hear any more about ongoing troubles between the two kingdoms. As Amitamru's rule wears on, though, the general situation in the Near East begins to deteriorate. Desperate for money, the viceroy of Karchemish makes a remarkable offer to Ugarit, exempting them from sending troops to the upcoming war with Assyria in exchange for 50 mina of gold perhaps 60 or 70 pounds, and Amitamru gladly paid. This situation with the war, however, soon got worse, and Ugarit's troops were summoned anyway, with no discussion of whether the earlier payment was ever refunded. Now, as Amitamru died around 1235 BCE and was replaced by his son Ibiranu, the various tensions between Ugarit and its neighbors plus the general stresses of the coming Bronze Age collapse, find Ugarit both increasingly irritated at the world and with ever-increasing amounts of wealth with which to do something about it. Utu, the main port of Tarhuntasha, continues sending merchants who are increasingly economically aggressive, as seen in numerous lawsuits which end in fairly substantial governments against Utu, but it isn't just Utu. The matter of the southern towns of Siyanu and Ushnatu also appear to be getting worse, or perhaps we just have more records of the killings and disputes in these later days. On the part of the Hittites, Tadhalia was increasingly favorable to the latter kings of Ugarit, intent on securing their loyalty, giving generous judgments on border and tax matters. But Ugarit did not respond in kind, instead having to be repeatedly rebuked for missing out on common courtesies like visiting Hattusha and offering greeting gifts with correspondence. Ultimately, by the end of the Hittite-Assyrian war between Tudhalia IV and Tukulti-Ninurta, Ugarit was growing so assertive of their own prerogative that the Assyrian king, Tukulti-Ninurta, sent a letter directly to the king of Ugarit announcing his victory at Nehraya, a violation of the usual vassal-overlord relationship, but a symbol both of the increased ambitions of Assyria and the greater independence that Ugarit was asserting. Now, Ibiranu dies after perhaps about a decade, and sometime around 1225, his son Nikmadu III takes over. These last kings of Ugarit demonstrate a general continuity in policy and ruling style. If Ugarit had another century to slowly continue to leverage its wealth into power, 
it may have had a chance to become a significant player in the late Bronze Age, or perhaps assert itself regionally independent of the Hittite Empire. Or it could have irritated someone too important and been squished like the rebellious bug it was becoming. Hittite queen Pudahepa, now extremely old and assisting in the administration of her son, has a letter reprimanding the king of Ugarit for being short in his tribute payments and not paying the customary visits to Hattusha. And when he does visit, his itinerary is minimal, skipping a mandatory visit to the queen herself even when he did go see the great king. Now, the negligence of Nikmadu III in relation to his nominal overlords is clearly getting more severe. Though, in fairness, the Lord of Ugarit may have wondered why he was paying for protection in an environment where the great powers were increasingly overwhelmed and local threats were getting stronger by the day, unchecked by the overlords or empires. Still, it's in his reign that we start to see rebukes from Nikmadu's direct overlord in Karchemish as well. Thus far, Ugarit had gotten along well with the local viceroy, especially since the tax avoidance had taken from Hattusha, not Karchemish, and trade between the two Syrian cities had continued quite profitably. Things deteriorated so substantially at some point in Nikmadu's reign that the king of Ugarit was compelled to visit the great Hattusian king, and during the meeting, Nikmadu's two messengers were arrested in a show of force. However this was resolved, we don't actually have the end of this story, Nikmadu soon enough ended up with a Hittite princess for a wife though how much of this was an attempt to control the independent-minded city through family connections, and how much of this was a bribe to keep the city loyal, is unclear. Now, many of the dates for rulers in Ugarit are extremely tentative estimates, but historians are pretty sure that the final king of Ugarit, Amurapi, took the throne from his father right around 1215 BCE. Amurapi, by the way, is the same name as Hammurabi, carrying a meaning like great family, or perhaps my family is great, and the difference between the names is just the difference between the Eastern and Western Amorite dialects. Now, there's a lot about this final reign that was once believed from early excavations that is being overturned with more recent scholarship. For example, there is a somewhat famous anecdote about a cache of clay tablets which talks about attacks on the city which were found inside an oven, suggesting that they were made with such immediacy that from the time that the clay was inscribed until the time that the tablets were fired, the city had been invaded and destroyed. Now, as exciting as the image of scribes frantically carving tablets as ships appear on the horizon might be, it's clear now that this story is simply mistaken, that these letters were written in calmer times, archived calmly, and probably fell onto the oven from an upper story of the palace, either during or after the destruction of the city. Still, even if the famous oven story is not actually true, Amurapi's reign was plenty exciting, witnessing the same two chief factors that led to the collapse of the Hittite Empire to the north. 
Amurapi was perhaps even more determined than his predecessors had been to break free of Tudhalia's collapsing Hittite empire. And correspondence is an increasingly desperate mix of guilting Amurapi for not sending tribute or visiting, and begging him to keep the crucial grain routes that fed Anatolia open. Amurapi, for his part, was fully aware of how much the Hittites needed him, and could potentially have used that to gain massive additional concessions from Tudhalia. And for all we know, he did try and extract exactly that. However, recent excavations have shown that Amurapi was in the earliest stages of discussions with Egypt, hoping to secure Ugarit a position in the 19th dynasty's sphere of influence, like it had been in previous eras. In our main letter that discusses these, almost certainly secret exchanges, Pharaoh Mernipta is replying to a request by Amurapi. It seems Ugarit was requesting Egyptian craftsmen to erect a statue of the Pharaoh outside the great temple of Baal that formed the religious heart of the city. A pretty telling statement of allegiance right there, and the pharaoh cannot help but notice the significance of the offer. Sadly, the letter likely arrived right as Merneptah took the throne, around 1213 or a bit after, and all the craftsmen were occupied in Egypt. But pharaoh acknowledged quite freely that the two lands were once very close, and seemed eager to renew that former closeness. So, he so eager that he loads the messenger ship with an extremely lavish shipment of gifts. Some intended to decorate the Temple of Baal, others just to show off the wealth of Egypt. So I guess the decorations and showing off the wealth are kind of the same thing. What Egypt would get out of the arrangement, aside from an increasingly powerful vassal, is unstated though potentially the taxes owed by a vassal Ugarit would dwarf the initial investment of this generous greeting gift. But this was not Ugarit's only sort of communication with Egypt. By this point, the Hittite Empire had been starving for quite some time now, and is increasingly dependent on Egyptian grain, much of which passes through the port of Ugarit. Now, the Hittite famine was discussed in episode 96, but it should be noted that despite the amount of grain passing through the harbor of Ugarit, the small kingdom was itself starving, as letters from within the kingdom discuss the very real possibility of whole villages starving to death if relief cannot be secured. By around 1200, Egyptian grain transports the new Hittite naval demands, and the pre-existing merchant fleet gave Ugarit a fleet of as many as 150 seaworthy ships, one of the largest known naval strengths of the entire Bronze Age. Now, this fleet was desperately needed as the mysterious sea peoples of the West begin at this point to arrive, with multiple sea battles fought in the seas around Cyprus. But ultimately, even this was unable to stop the tide of migrants and warriors as the Hittite Empire collapses in Anatolia. Ugarit's land forces were wholly expended in Hittite last-ditch defenses of the city of Hatti, 
while whatever remained of the navy had been sent by the Hittite king over to Lucalands to try and stem the tide of that threat. And by the final years of Ugarit, the city was stripped completely of defenses. The beginning of the end comes when the Sea Peoples land at the northern Syrian coastal city of Mukish, located north of Ugarit but south of the main Hittite Empire. The final Hittite king, Shipililiuma II, demanded that Ugarit muster even more troops to defend this city, but Amurapi finally just said no. Now, in another time, this would have been an act of open rebellion against the Hittite Empire, but it was increasingly clear that there was very little empire at this point left to rebel against, and those troops needed to stay home to defend against the sea peoples who only got closer to the walls of the wealthy city. Many records of the fall of village after village in Ugarit's territory are preserved in the city, desperate pleas for help that went unanswered. And in the final hour, a letter from Amurapi to his nominal overlord, the viceroy of Karchemish, yielded nothing more than moral support. Sometime between 1194 and 1186, a sea people force of unknown size approached the city walls, breached them, and fought street to street, battling defenders and slaughtering the defenseless. The upper layer of archaeological excavation is two meters of destruction, wounded skeletons and arrowheads everywhere. The city was burned to the ground by the Sea Peoples, who plundered it for riches, then moved on to other targets. Anything not worth carrying, including the massive library of receipts, religious texts, and assorted correspondence, was simply left where it fell to wait 3,000 long years under the dirt until eventually being found again by modern archaeology. And that, more or less, is the whole history of Ugarit, as far as history can reconstruct, minus a few less interesting details. But as mentioned, the real reason I'm telling you about Ugarit is because, despite not actually being in Canaan, is our best source on the Canaanites, thanks to the cache of Ugarit religious text and literature. It is that cache that we'll start to look at over the next few episodes through this hiatus. Like I've said before, I can't promise that episodes will continue to come out regularly, not even on this new sort of fortnightly schedule that we've been doing, and maybe some other topic will come up first and like interrupt stuff, but at some point, we're going to start the Ugaritic myth series with the tale of Kirta and his struggle to secure his kingship and progeny. Also, I'm still taking questions for the 100th episode question and answer special, which will at this rate probably be long past the 100th episode, but go and check out the post at the top of oldeststories.net or just contact me anywhere you know how. Thank you for listening.